Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion, that USDA program, it's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. Hello, listeners, and welcome to another edition of Politico's Nerdcast. I'm Scott Bland, your host. This week on the Nerdcast, the Florida governor's race is shaping up to be a doozy and maybe even a bit of a preview of the 2020 presidential race. Uh, we had big primaries there and in Arizona and also Oklahoma on Tuesday night. So we'll talk through what happened as the field gets set in most of the battleground House races and all of the battleground Senate races that we are following around the country. Plus, the gulf between what the administration says and what it does was on display again this week. When President Trump says he's going to, quote, look into something, is it the equivalent of a parent telling a child, we'll see? We're going to talk about that and the pending departure of White House counsel Don McGahn uh, with one of our White House correspondents in the second segment. A reminder to our listeners to subscribe to the Nerdcast, rate us, and write a review. And stay tuned for the end of the show for a contribution from one of the Nerdcast's biggest fans. One more note before we begin, we are taping this a little bit before noon Eastern on Thursday, August 30th. So any indictments, court filings, presidential tweets, special election results, what have you that happens after then, sorry, not included. All right, I want to welcome our guests. We have uh, our house expert reporter, Elena Schneider, in the studio. Hi, Elena. Hey, Scott. Also in the studio, senior politics editor, Charlie Matassian. Hi, Charlie. Hey, Scott. Great to general boarding. Three checks to your left. What is there? Did you use a clear membership today? Uh, no. Are you seriously pre check? Right through here. Thank you. No, I'm not free. And on the line from Phoenix Sky Harbor International Airport, where he successfully uh, avoided getting detained by the Transportation Security Agency, James Arkin, our Senate expert. Hi, James. Hi. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, I guess, yeah, it's early morning for you. Um, we'll, we'll jump right in before you have to board your plane. Uh, time for our first data point, 121. The GOP nominee to be governor of Florida, Ron DeSantis, was on Fox News and Fox Business 121 times in the last eight months. Joining me from Orlando is Republican Congressman Ron, Ron DeSantis. DeSantis. His campaign says the airtime was worth about $9 million at market rates for TV advertising. And he became the Republican nominee for governor of Florida, partially on the back of that on Tuesday night. He is going to face in the general election Andrew Gillum, the previously little-known mayor of Tallahassee, who uh, is the state's first African-American nominee for governor uh, on the Democratic side. Charlie, start us off uh, with this this campaign in Florida. These are two candidates in the nation's largest swing state who were not expected to be— uh, who were not expected to be in this position at the start of the campaign, but they're going to be flying the flags for their party for a very important office now. Yeah, it's a pretty amazing outcome if you look back maybe a year ago or so. You never would have guessed that the two nominees would look like this. On the one hand, on the Republican side, you had Adam Putnam, uh, who had been sort of he had been a one-time congressional boy wonder who went back to Tallahassee or went back to Florida because he wanted to ultimately win the governorship one day. So he had been teed up for the governorship. On the Democratic side, you've had a couple of decades of centrist Democrats who have been running. That was sort of the thinking in a big swing state like Florida that you really couldn't get too far to the left as a Democratic nominee. 
nominee. Yet all of a sudden, here we are, and we're about to have a uh, a little 2020 proxy war uh, in the governorship this year in Florida between Ron DeSantis, who you know cut his teeth on Fox and came to President Trump's attention on Fox. He's very much of a Trump clone, campaigned on Trump, did that ad that everybody saw, uh, you know, with his kid dressed in MAGA outfits and talking about Trump. Uh, and then on the left, you've got Andrew Gillum, who you know as recently as a couple months ago, nobody would have thought that he had enough money or name recognition to win that. So it's going to be absolutely fascinating, and there are uh, very significant implications for 2020 in terms of the outcome in the Florida governorship this year. And I just think about Gillum. This is a big departure for Florida Democrats in terms of what they've been doing for the last 20 years. They haven't won the governorship in 20 years, and they keep nominating. They've nominated uh, white moderates from Central Florida, from Orlando and Tampa. Right? There was Alex Sink. There was Charlie Crist. Gillum is and his campaign think that that that's been the wrong bet, right? And that he he's going to bring out energy that was not available to those candidates before and that that could be what what snaps this really long losing streak for a party despite Florida's swing state status. Right. I mean, it is a huge departure for Florida to, for Florida Democrats to nominate someone that liberal. I mean, they, this is a state that always nominates centrists. It's a state where Democrats have been shut out of power and progressives have been saying for a long time, well, sure, we can't win the race because we're putting up these milk toast candidates that nobody gets excited about and nobody turns out for. And so we'll, we'll finally see. We'll see what kind of uh, African-American turnout we're going to have. We're going to see what kind of uh, progressive turnout uh, we'll see. And it's, it's going to be a mess to the race. I mean, we already saw the, the rollout yesterday with the uh, highly racialized remarks uh, uh, from from Ron DeSantis, and I think you're going to see that for the rest of the campaign. You know whether that is uh, advertent or inadvertent. You know that kind of uh, dog whistle rhetoric. I think you'll see a lot more of it. It's going to be just a bitter, uh, bitter race. Absolutely. Uh, so th- that was one of the big races that we saw on Tuesday night, which was the the last big multi-state primary day of uh, 2018. The other one. Let's jump over to Arizona and James, where Republicans chose the most mainstream of kind of three three options in the uh, Senate race. And they're replacing Jeff Flake there, uh, who retired earlier uh, this cycle after coming into conflict with Trump and deciding he couldn't win re-election. And now all three of the, the main candidates running to replace him kind of tried in various ways to uh, to to stick with Trump uh, throughout the primary. James, can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so President Trump didn't actually endorse in this primary. You wouldn't have known it if you were watching what the uh, three candidates were doing in the lead-up to it. So you had you had Congresswoman Martha McSally, who was kind of the establishment pick. A lot of folks, you know, like Mitch McConnell, the majority leader, and, and others thought that she was really the only candidate who was going to be able to be successful in the general election. Then you had uh, former state Senator Kelly Ward, who's uh, kind of a provocateur, uh, you know, a, a far-right candidate. Uh, who unsuccessfully challenged John McCain two years ago in the primary. And then you had Sheriff Joe Arpaio, uh, who uh, infamously uh, was pardoned by President Trump last year uh, for his criminal contempt misdemeanor, uh, the former Maricopa County sheriff, uh, who actually lost his race in 2016. And uh, so those are the three candidates. They were all very pro-Trump. They were all running uh, directly to the president, trying to make it seem like they had his endorsement or his support, or at least would be the most pro-Trump candidate in the race. Uh, but our Pion Ward really split the uh, the conservative vote, sort of the, the hard right vote from the Arizona Republicans. And so McSally actually pretty easily uh, secured the win right around 50 percent of the vote, which is exactly what uh, her team was hoping for. So it, it was a it was a bruising primary for her. But uh, the final vote turned out to actually be not as competitive as it might have been. Now, 
James, walk us through the general election now. McSally's going to go on to face Democratic Congresswoman Kirsten Sinema. Um, and the the race is kicking off. It's really on pause this week in the first week of the general election as Arizona kind of takes a break to honor the late Senator John McCain, uh, who died over the weekend. But you're working on a story right now about how uh, McSally and Cinema both are really trying to cast themselves as almost the heirs to McCain's mantle, uh, that that u- unique uh, persona that that he had crafted in the Senate. Can you can you explain that to us a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. So um, you're, you're right. It's it's on pause. It was supposed to be a very quick turnaround, but obviously Senator McCain passing uh, both candidates pulled their ads off TV and and pulled themselves off the campaign trail for a couple of days to honor Senator McCain. Uh, but, you know, uh, Republicans think that Martha McSally is kind of a, a natural successor to McCain in a way. Obviously, most Arizonans would say McCain himself is irreplaceable. But, uh, you know, she's a former fighter pilot, uh, the first fighter pilot, female fighter pilot to serve in combat. And so they, you know, they see her military service and her focus on veterans issues and military issues as, as kind of a, a natural succession to John McCain. Uh, but the other thing about John McCain was, you know, his maverick style, his uh, refusal to kind of, you know, play along with his party. He really upset his party pretty consistently throughout his career. And Democrats think there's an opening for Kirsten Cinema to kind of pick up that mantle. Uh, you know, she's running as an independent voice. Uh, you will not hear in any of the millions of dollars that she spent on TV ads. You will not hear her mention Trump. You will not hear her mention that she's a Democrat. Uh, she votes with Trump about 60 percent of the time, much more than than you would expect uh, based on the district that she currently represents. And, uh, you know, she's she's bucked her party on, on a couple of things. And, and so, you know, she's trying to pick up that sort of independent mavericky mantle and hope that some of the independents and even moderate Republicans who were big John McCain supporters uh, are willing to vote for a Democrat as long as that Democrat is willing to buck the party and not be, you know, a down the line. Democrat. Cinema has explicitly invoked McCain's old slogan, right? Country over party, uh, as, as she was talking to you. And I, and I think she's been using it in her public appearances. I, I just it, there's this really interesting kind of mirror image there between her and McCain on immigration, especially, especially. McCain obviously made a lot of Republicans unhappy with uh, his stance on immigration and his work on immigration reform. Whereas Cinema, I think uh, a lot of Democrats would like to see her move a little bit further to the left on that. But she's kind of uh, she's resisted. Yeah, absolutely. Immigration, you hit the nail on the head there. You know, she's she's not a down-the-line Democrat on immigration. She didn't vote uh, with most Democrats to uh, not fund it. She voted to fund the government rather than vote not to fund the government for an immigration deal. That's a little bit complicated, sorry. Uh, back when there was a central government shutdown over immigration, she was one of the Democrats who voted to keep the government open, uh, much to the chagrin of the most progressive members of her party. And so Democrats say that's a that's a pretty clear contrast with McSally, who they don't think would buck the party or would buck President Trump on any issues, you know, immigration included. That's really interesting. That That's going to be one of the top, top Senate races in uh, in the country this year. Democrats haven't won one in 30 years in Arizona, but between cinema's strengths and the uh, changing demography of the state, you know, it's going to be really interesting to see if they can finally pick off. Uh, a seat there, um, as you know, Arizona really turns the page on its political history a little bit. Elena, I want to bring you in. Talk, talk us through some of the stuff that happened in in the House on uh, Tuesday night, as we're we're really getting to the end of primary season here. And it was definitely very interesting in that Florida governor's race to see and, you know, Andrew Gillum uh, come through as kind of part of this this 
avatar of, of some some of the trends we've been seeing across the country, right, of this uh, big progressive push in, in primaries. But the one that you were watching most closely on Tuesday night, I think, in Arizona resulted in one of the more moderate members gaining the nomination and in a big swing district. That's right. So I uh, spent some time down in Tucson with uh, former Congresswoman Ann Kirkpatrick and Matt Hines. And this was a they were running against each other in a Democratic primary. Matt Hines, who's a former state legislator and a 2016 nominee in that district, was really trying to run to the left of Ann Kirkpatrick, who uh, represented a different House district. She lost it after or, or left it vacant after she ran for uh, Senate in 2016, which obviously she lost. And she she had to, she was in a position of having to defend a very moderate voting record uh, from having represented a Republican leaning rural district. And Matt Hines really litigated her record on television. And it was one race that national Democrats um, who had, you know, the DCCC had endorsed her, really wanted her to get through this race, felt like she was the most viable candidate in the general election. They were really worried about it. And there was some real uh, sort of white knuckling through the end there because Matt Hines was really litigating her record and was putting her on her heels about whether or not she was progressive enough. But she was able to, I think, in part through just simple name ID and also getting quite as nasty as it really did at the end. Matt Hines sort of drew this comparison to uh, to her political career as a sort of a meth addict that she couldn't get out of being in politics. So, look, it, t- it took a really nasty turn. And pretty, also, pretty rich from a guy who's run for Congress like three, three times, times so far. Exactly. But that being said, I think she also benefited not only from name recognition and just sort of generally being known in the area, uh, even though she hadn't represented it before, but also being a woman. And. And that hasn't always been the case. So look, I mean, I think if we sort of take a step back from this, look, we have an example of a moderate woman coming through in a House district that's going to be super high on the priority list. And then in contrast, we have Gwen Graham, a form, another former congresswoman who represented a very moderate district and a very moderate record, who lost in Florida against Andrew Gillum in that race, even though she was the only woman running against three other male candidates. So I think that it sort of speaks to the mixed bag that we have after these primaries where we've got plenty of examples and counterexamples of where moderates won, of where progressives won, of where Medicare for All worked, where it didn't work, where Sanders' endorsement mattered and where Trump's endorsement mattered. And I think it just sort of speaks to the really uh, very varied map that we have in this country and sort of what voters are looking for. And a lot of different potential candidates and personalities that are going to come through in, in this election that maybe we're going to be spending a lot of time thinking about in, in future years, a lot of potential rising stars coming through those. Exactly. And it also speaks to the continued tension where the Democrats don't have an answer yet as to what they want their party to look like. When we have all these different people carrying all these different mantles, it makes it a lot more complicated to try and create some kind of unifying message heading into 2020. Yeah. But it, I mean, it is interesting. I, I, that's one of the reasons I love following these primaries so much, because I really do feel like you can kind of track the rise of people who are going to be a big deal later on through them. Obviously, there are a lot more people who fall by the wayside, but I just thought it was interesting as the obituaries for John McCain were rolling in over the weekend. One of, one of them noted that he won his first primary by six points. And look what happened. You know, there was a very crowded race and that he, he won it by six points. And then from then on, it was all he, he embarked on this meteoric political career. Uh, James, I want to th- uh, throw it to you to take us out here. What, what's the big thing that you've taken away from the, the Senate primary so far this year? The map is now set with the Arizona results in. We know uh, all the candidates and all the big battleground races. Um, how, how do you what, – what's, what's your big, uh, big kind of overarching takeaway from the, the, the primary season and the, the, the Republican candidates we see especially 
going up in these in these big uh, Trump states? Yeah, uh, I would say that the biggest takeaway, first off, is that Republicans avoided any sort of major disaster. Um, you know, if McSally had lost this primary in Arizona, they probably would have considered this race a lost cause. Uh, same goes for Don Blankenship. If he had won the primary in West Virginia, they would have considered that a lost cause. Uh, but things aren't all great for, for Republicans. You know, in, in West Virginia, for example, they would have preferred Evan Jenkins win the primary and, and said Patrick Morrissey won. He's a, not quite as good a candidate, uh, Republicans would say, as, as Jenkins would have been. Uh, McSally had to fight a really tough primary, spent a lot of money. It's not a clean shot at, at Kirsten Cinema in this quick turnaround. Uh, so, you know, the, the map is uh, it's, it's large. Uh, there are a lot of competitive races. Republicans probably wish they could have taken a couple off the board and probably wish they could have had, uh, you know, some easier primaries here. But they, they avoided disaster. They're competitive in every state they want to be competitive in for the most part. And, uh, you know, back in a couple of years ago when Mitch McConnell was saying that bad nominees were costing them races because bad nominees were getting through primaries, that didn't happen this cycle. That's a great point. All right, James, we are going to let you go board your plane now. Thank you so much for joining us uh, for this call. Thank you very much. I'm glad uh, TSA PreCheck got me through quickly enough to get to you. <laughs> uh, and Elena, thank you very much for being here as well. Thanks so much for having me. All right, moving on to our next data point, which is one. One floor, that's how far apart Donald Trump, President of the United States, and Don McGahn, the White House counsel, worked away from each other, separated by one floor at the White House, but it may as well have been 100 miles by the end of McGahn's tenure. Trump said on Twitter this week that McGahn would be leaving this fall, which we all kind of knew anyway, but uh, Trump, as he often does, trying to uh, take some personal control or the appearance of personal control over the situation. Andrew Rastusha from our White House team is here to help us make sense of it. Andrew, welcome. Thanks. So what's the backstory here? Was Don McGahn fired by tweet or are things a little more complicated than that? It's always a little bit more complicated in this White House. Um, McGahn had told people in the White House and, and his associates outside the White House, this is this goes back months and weeks, that he was planning to leave. And we were reported, I think, back in the spring that he was planning to leave uh, after the midterms. Um, in this case, he's planning to leave after Brett Kavanaugh is confirmed, if he is confirmed, which people think that he will be. Um, and uh, Trump sort of sped the process along after reports started leaking about his, his inevitable uh, departure. And um, yeah, so so McGahn was was surprised, as we reported and others reported by the tweet. He wasn't surprised that that you know Trump wanted him to go, but he was surprised about the timing. So Trump essentially made sure that he, he had no chance to uh, change his mind. McGahn, talk us through what's happened with him in the White House. He was with the campaign from the beginning, uh, has been a part of this, and uh, has at, at times been very very closely involved in all of what's gone on at the White House and the, the executive orders, the drafting of legislation. We'll talk about the, the biggest one, judges, in a moment. But uh, obviously the relationship has has soured and and not just because uh, McGahn cooperated with uh, with the uh, special prosecutor investigators who are who are working on the, the Russia probe. Right. So so 
McGahn joined the campaign back in 2015, and it was a big deal when he joined um, to be the campaign lawyer. He was one of the first sort of establishment uh, DC folks to say, I'm going to sort of hitch my wagon to Donald Trump. Um, we reported last night that Trump was a little skeptical about hiring him because he didn't think he got, went to a very good law school, which is a very Trumpian, <laughs> which is a very Trumpian thing. Uh, oh but they, they eventually developed a actually pretty, pretty close r- rapport on the campaign. They were pretty friendly. They, they, they talked uh, socially. Um, and this all really changed around March 2017 when everything started falling apart for Trump. If you go back and remember, this is the moment where the travel ban uh, was was knocked down in court. Um, the special counsel was appointed and Jeff Sessions also recused himself from the investigation, from oversight of the, of the Russia investigation. And Trump was really desperately looking for someone to blame for that. And uh, one of the one of many people that he blamed for that was Don McGahn. So that sort of started their relationship on um, uh, at a tricky place. And then over time, as the Russian investigation really heated up, um, McGahn and Trump got into quite a few heated arguments about um, about exactly you know what the strategy should be. And then as McGahn himself started separating himself from the Russian investigation, he basically said, I don't want to be dealing with this. Let the other lawyers in the White House deal with it. Um, Trump became more and more resentful, I think. Um, and, 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 you know, over time, there was, one person described it as sort of a cold war. I mean, they, they weren't they basically weren't in communication except for necessary White House business. And it seems like a, a, some of that resentment stems from how McGahn saw his role. Trump saw him as Trump's lawyer and McGahn saw himself as the presidency's lawyer. Exactly. And it's, it's actually a pretty big distinction. It's a huge distinction. And I think that, and someone described it that way to me yesterday, that like McGahn considers himself to be a caretaker of the presidency, as do most White House counsels. And Trump demands loyalty from everyone around him all the time, personal loyalty, not loyalty to the government or loyalty to any institution. And that, so that was always going to be an inevitable clash, I think, between the two of them. Um, and then, of course, you know, McGahn at the same time is also sort of the savvy political operator. He made sure um, and the people around him made sure that he wasn't being dragged into um, these questions of obstruction of justice and, and other things, because it is, you know, in some ways, a White House lawyer who's been there through the campaign is pretty vulnerable in a lot of these situations. And you've seen stories come up time and time again about McGahn uh, refusing to uh, fire Mueller, for example, and getting into a big fight with Trump about it. The White House denies that that ever happened, but we have sources that said that it, that it, that it did happen. So um, it is a sort of a complicated uh, relationship for there, sure. There's also the elephant in the room, and I don't mean this to, to – um, I, I, maybe I do. Trump doesn't really believe in the rule of law. You know, he's not an adherent to that. And so obviously he looks at him again as a, as a buzzkill, like at the most basic essential level. Like he's the guy who always gets in the way of what I want to do. That's a great point. Exactly. Yeah. The one thing that and, – and we talked about the, the, the big legacy of McGahn's tenure as White House counsel is going to be the number of judges that, mm-hmm. that Trump appointed. And that process ran through – McGahn's office, and uh, he, he played a really big role in in getting all these judges. Not just Kavanaugh, who is expected to join the Supreme Court once his confirmation hearings, uh, un- unless something extremely 
unexpected happens, but but a whole lot of other federal judges to appeals courts and circuit courts around the country. Exactly. And that will be McGahn's legacy. That is the reason why he stayed despite all of the tension uh, with, with the president. Um, and that is, frankly, the, the, the biggest issue that and sort of deregulation that McGahn and Trump agree on. That's, that's the sort of saving grace of their relationship. And so uh, McGahn has basically said that he's going to stay to see through uh, Kavanaugh's um, confirmation. And that will be the second Supreme Court, Supreme Court justice that he's uh, seen through the process. But it's more than that, right? It's, it's about reshaping the, 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 the federal court system um, toward uh, conservative judges. And he's, and he's done that to an, to an insane degree. And, and he is, uh, more than anyone in the White House, the person that's been responsible for that. And Charlie, that's that's not just a, a policy legacy. Obviously, the, these judges on these courts are going to be uh, ruling on policy for for decades to come. But it's also McGahn essentially in that role has been responsible for one of the Trump administration's big political victories, and part of why he's been able to keep his base from completely fracturing under the the stress of uh, everything that's gone on in his presidency. Yeah, I, I mean, I think the way if if you're Don McGahn, not not to play dime store psychologist here, but if you're him, how do you justify uh, what you're doing given the president's approach to to the law? Is that you look at something like that? I mean, you're working for a. Uh, a, a president with a pre-Magna Carta mindset. And so, you know, that's not going to be easy. But what you look down the road at is decades of uh, conservative jurists who are going to change the culture, who are going to change uh, the politics of this country. And then all of a sudden it becomes very easy. I mean, th- that is going to be the ultimate legacy of Donald Trump, uh, you know, particularly if he doesn't run for a second term or if he loses. What will stay there, you know, all the executive orders, they'll be gone. Everything will be washed away. Uh, but what won't go away are the justices. And these are not, unlike a lot of the administration, like I think one very valid criticism of the administration is the lack of talent in lots of places. You know, the, the, the talent pool is not very deep. Uh, and that was true on the, the Trump campaign as well and uh, because of the seat of the pants nature. What, what is true, though, is that the conservative jurists that they're picking are highly respected in the conservative community and they are heavyweight uh, substantive jurists and that is going to last for a long time. And I, th- and I think the entire sort of conservative um, uh, law world has, has done the same thing that Don McGahn has done over the last several months. You know, the Federal Society, Leonard Leos of the world, they've looked the other way on so many issues because of this very thing, because they want to see uh, the court uh, reshaped in a conservative image. You know, I want to go off. This is not going to be as big a tangent as it might seem like, but the uh, the the way we all got McGahn's departure confirmed was via presidential tweet, and that's become a a regular part of all of our lives who uh, cover cover politics. But Andrew, you're you're working on a, a story about this this pattern of presidential statements. McGahn's departure is one that's going to happen, but this pattern of presidential statements, often via Twitter, that just don't seem to pan out. And unlike this this drive to appoint all these conservative judges uh, to the courts, there have been dozens upon dozens of pronouncements and plans that uh, seem like they're made one day and forgotten the next. Exactly. And and this is also a very Trumpian thing, right? I mean, he sort of um, – it's the nature of, of Twitter for him is that he goes on there and he, you know – says what's on the top of his mind and then often his mind changes or his mind moves on to some other thing and then that thing is totally forgotten. So we've come up with a bunch of examples. I mean, there, you know, he was obsessed with a quote-unquote shadow banning on Twitter for a period. There was, uh, I'm going to take away NBC News' uh, operating license. I'm going to uh, look into 3D plastic guns. Uh, I've instructed the SEC to look into quarterly reporting of uh, corporations. Uh, 
Uh, I'm going to rewrite the country's libel laws. I'm interested in a gas tax. I mean, all these things have have you know been in the news cycle for one day, and then we all write stories about it, and we sort of try to put a frame on it. Okay, was there is there going to be an executive order? Is there going to be is there some sort of policy process on these things? And the reality is, for most of the time, for a lot of these things, there just isn't. It's it's a uh, quite the twist on the old. Uh campaign and poetry govern in prose saying, right, Charlie? Well, yeah. I mean, he, he governs in, in on Twitter. He doesn't govern in prose or poetry. You know, he governs in 140 characters. But I mean... It's I, 280 what, now. It, oh, that's right. I always forget. <laughs> but I mean, not to downplay the, the menace of shadow banning on Twitter, because clearly that's a, a, a problem that really uh, affects a lot of uh, Americans and, and they care deeply about it. But uh, I mean, I think... <laughs> What we're seeing is him just juicing the base to a degree we've never even seen. I mean, that's what presidents do. You have to keep the the base occupied. You have to make sure they turn out. But I mean, I think they have uh, turned the dial up uh, to a degree that we haven't seen before. And I, th- I think that's actually the, the the evolution of politics now. It's never about winning a landslide and winning a mandate from the American people. You know, both parties have given gave up on that long ago. It's about getting to fifty percent plus one and then jamming everything down America's throat. You know, there is no such thing as a mandate or a landslide. Now we're seeing sort of an extreme where every uh, measure of governance, everything that happens in that White House is about juicing the base. It's every tweet. It's every executive order. It's every trip. Uh, you know, everything has the same function, juice the base, you know, whether it's the NFL, uh, all of that. It's all about making sure every last one of them squeezing every drop from that uh, sponge in 2020. I will say, though, I've talked to people in the White House this week who about this dynamic. Like if you if you're a policy person in, in this administration and you're seeing all these things come up on Twitter, I think at the beginning of the administration, there was a sense, OK, well, we better we better, you know, follow the president's orders here. Like he just said he wants to do this thing on Twitter. Let, let's do it. And I think as the months have, have gone on, you've seen people in the administration just basically themselves ignoring what the president is saying, unless he, unless at a, you know, a closed door meeting, he orders someone to do something. But I think for most people in this White House, him saying something on Twitter, him saying that he wants to do something on Twitter is not seen in any capacity as an order. Which is crazy. Yeah. You know, the, pre- the president has a lot of power, but there, he can't just do anything, right? There are actual laws in place about what he can and can't do. Uh, and that's, all, that's one of the things that McGahn and the other White House lawyers, bringing it back to McGahn here, like uh, <laughs> they've had to deal with that, right? They've had to deal with, well, just because Trump wants to do something, is it actually legal? Can we actually do it? Right. And I mean, it certainly is still the case that he can set the wheels in motion on things. Well, Andrew, th- thank you so much for walking us through all that. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. And uh, Charlie, thank you as always for being here today. Thank you for having me as always. What's normal anyway? What's normal anyway? What's normal anyway? All right, as promised, we are going to turn things over briefly to one Nerdcast superfan here at the end of the show. Bill Colonna of New Jersey's 5th District is going to help us out with the credits this week after Charlie identifies the current representative of that district and who he defeated in 2016. That's Josh Gottheimer, of course. Uh, He defeated uh, Scott Garrett, the Republican, so it's a Democratic pickup. Bill, take it away. Nerdcast is produced by Micaela Rodriguez with help from Adrian Hurst. Dave Shaw is the executive producer, and their illustrator is Bill Cookman. If you like Nerdcast and you're listening on Apple Podcasts, rate the show and leave a review. It helps new listeners find the show. Thank you, Bill. Listeners, we found Bill because he emailed in to say he was a fan. If you are a fan of the Nerdcast who wants to read the credits, please let us know. Shoot an email to nerdcast at politico.com. Once again, thank you all for listening. We'll talk to you again next week.
do you know the song Amy Lennox's Walking on Broken Glass? Uh, no. Oh, my God. God, James. It's from her solo career, which she embarked on in 1992 with her debut album, Diva. That is a ridiculous amount of information. I'm reading Wikipedia right now. I've never heard of this person before. 